0: You turn your Bible to Luke chapter 8 as we pick a passage here as we continue uh, for a few more weeks. A series in Luke. Suffering has truly hit home with us this week as we encounter a viral pandemic and roiling financial markets. A spirit of uncertainty is on our minds and fills our conversations. But in our passage, we find two encounters where Jesus enters into people's crises, walks right into people's suffering to bring the peace and healing that only God can provide. Let us learn from the master who offers hope to desperate people. I read Luke 8, beginning verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him, She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the women saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any more. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is God's word. Father, I indeed would ask this morning that the words of my mouth... The meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. While well, recent events and the escalating situation worldwide makes Jesus's encounters with people suffering all the more relevant, I was scheduled to begin helping Pastor Kiefer teach a Sunday school class on suffering uses, using Tim Cowher's book *Walking with God* through pain and suffering. And as I was reading the opening chapters of this book, I was reminded how every religion, every person's religion or a lack of religion, everyone's worldview shapes how they view suffering. None of us like suffering. We aim to avoid it when we can, but how we understand it and how we see our purpose in life is largely shaped, or largely shapes how we handle hardship In pain, the old pagan cultures of northern Europe believed at the end of time, the gods and the heroes would all be killed by the giants and monsters in a tragic event called Ragnarok. For them, the highest virtue was to stand one's ground and die honorably against hopeless odds. Religious traditions all seek to find meaning in suffering to learn from it, to pay one's debts, to prepare for the next life. But we live in a modern Western society that seems to find no value in suffering. The traditional view of evil sees it either as a punishment, a test, or an opportunity. But modern people seem to deny the existence of evil or try to explain it away. Consequently, for many modern people, Suffering is all the more traumatic because we've manufactured our lives to minimize pain, to find quick remedies, to build for ourselves a false sense of security that we have everything under control. Older cultures brought suffering, looked at suffering as a coherent view of life, an important aspect to living well, but we find ourselves in a Western society that values individual freedom above all other the things we seek to medicate pain rather than address and deal with the root causes. C.S. Lewis famously said in his work at the abolition of man, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. But for modern people, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. The solution is a technique. Western society's highest goal seems to be preventing suffering. And we would agree that preventing and alleviating suffering is a good thing. It's just not an ultimate thing. In our passage, Jesus enters the lives of sufferers but what he provides for them is more than temporary relief he offers them full restoration with god this incident illustrates the mission of jesus to make the broken whole again jesus offers hope to sufferers who long who desperately long for permanent relief from all the afflictions of the fall now our passage follows on the heels of Jesus healing a demon-possessed man whom Jesus set free to serve as a witness among the Gentiles. Dr. John Curry preached that passage back in the summertime. But Jesus here is approached by the demoniac's opposite, a synagogue ruler named Jairus, a pious and well-respected leader of his community. This man also comes desperate, falling at Jesus' feet imploring him to come come to his house to heal his only daughter who was tragically dying few know the anxiety and the worry of a parent with a child suffering Handi- handing a child to a doctor for open heart surgery like my wife and I did when our daughter was 4 years old is a trial of faith Losing a child in a crowd like I did when my, one of my sons was barely old enough to talk is a panic moment. Parents have children facing chronic health situations, mental health problems, children who stray, children who make tragic choices with severe consequences. Parents across our nation will be encountering how to care for their children in the weeks to come as they're home from school. Jairus is a parent who comes to Jesus with deep faith. Jairus ignores all the controversies about Jesus. Others can argue about whether he's legitimate, whether he truly is a prophet. The Pharisees and the Sadducees arguing, complaining, that Jesus hangs out with sinners. All Jairus knows is that his daughter is dying, and Jesus is the only one who can help her. We note that Jesus agrees to go without comment, without question, but then his new itinerary is rudely interrupted by a woman of much less social status than Jairus, We all sympathize with Jairus' daughter, much like people in the first century would have a little girl of 12, the child of a godly man of good reputation. It's a tragic situation. But contrast her with this woman an outcast, unmarried, friendless, unclean, unable to join others in public worship. We learn that she's penniless, having spent all that she had on the useless efforts of doctors. Luke, a physician, knows something about quack doctors who take advantage of vulnerable people. With the same faith, in desperation of Jairus, this woman touches just the mere fringe of Jesus' garment. She's healed immediately. Immediately. This unclean woman, who had the audacity to touch a holy man, a rabbi of Israel, merely wanted the bleeding to stop and then slink away, hide in obscurity. But Jesus will have none of that. He calls her out publicly. The thing she feared most exposure had now come into the light and would face an outcome that she had not expected these two very different but equally desperate people set off five commands from the lips of Jesus. It's here that we find God's words of hope to desperate people who long for relief not only from suffering, but to be restored with the living God. Immediately upon the healing of this woman, Jesus cries out, who was it that touched me. It's the king's command for the culprit, culprit to show him or herself. It's similar to God calling out to Adam in the garden, Where are you? Peter, part bewildered and part amused, challenges Jesus. Well, the people are all pressing around him. They apparently fail to practice social distancing. But Jesus will not let it go. He clarifies that someone has touched him. That power has gone out from him. The woman is caught. Nowhere to hide, nowhere to run. And so meekly comes out into the spotlight, trembling as she falls at Jesus' feet. There she spills out her story before everybody. This terrified woman has found a safe place at the feet of Jesus. To tell her sad account as an outcast, abused and neglected, this unwanted, lonely, needy woman finds more than healing, but refuge, security in the presence of Jesus. I met a woman recently like this woman in the text as I was giving the devotion at North Star North Stars Harbor House nearby, a house for rescued women from trafficking. I had been informed in advance from the director that there would only be one resident for the devotion as the others had appointments scheduled. And I was informed that she was a Muslim. So when I went, I shared from Luke 15 the stories, so the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and of course, the famous prodigal son story. I emphasized for her how God seeks the lost, to find them, to restore them. This woman was mesmerized. She'd never heard these stories before in her life. And then I compared for her the story of the prodigal son to the three little pig story, which she was familiar with. You all know the younger son from Jesus' parable goes away into a far land and squanders all of his inheritance. Well, He's like the pig who built his house out of straw that was, could not withstand the wrath of the big bad wolf. The older brother in Jesus' story is like the second pig who builds his house out of sticks a little more sturdy, built upon moral deeds and good works, but still useless in the day of God's wrath. And just as the two pigs needed to find refuge in the house of their third brother, who built his house out of brick to withstand the storms of big bad wolf. So the younger brother in Jesus' parable and the older brother need a third brother. Both Gentile and Jew need to find refuge in the house of Jesus, the third brother who can shield and protect us from the wrath to come. When Jesus asked, who touched me? Jesus was asking who was it that was desperate enough to come to me for help, to believe in me despite ostracism, to give up on loose living or moralism as a way of life, but to trust in me despite the risk of ridicule, to face more suffering and a world that's hostile to our faith, but to come to a holy and righteous God that forgives sinners, who offers eternal life? to those made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. We are living at an odd time where we are afraid, fearful of touching, fear of contamination from a dangerous virus. Yes, we need to be wise. We need to be careful not to put ourselves or others at risk of infection. I urge us to use this crisis to reach out to God, to hold on to the hem of his garment, to seek his intervention, to heal you of your afflictions, to restore your broken, fallen condition, to reconcile strained relationships, to hope in him during these dark valleys ahead. Do things that touch other people that show them the same compassion and mercy that you ever see from the living God? Who are the untouchables in your world? Who are the people who are better managed from a distance? Jesus was not afraid to be touched by them, and neither should we. Or the surprise of the crowd, Jesus does not scold this woman, Rather, he commends her, he vindicates her, he is actually pleased with her for coming to him, for touching him, for hoping in him, for risking ridicule from the crowds and disappointment from not receiving a healing miracle. He calls her daughter because that's what she is, a child of God. He affirms that her faith has made her well. We know from Scripture that without faith it's impossible to please God. God is not a banker to whom we come with all of our collateral and our sterling credit records in order to secure a loan. God is not a dealer before whom we negotiate pledging to make a great return on his investment. No, God is the all-sufficient righteous king who needs nothing from us, who is the perfect loving father who does not need our promises to try harder and do better next time. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God makes those well who cannot make themselves well, for whom the world cannot make us well, who have no other recourse but to come to him who alone makes us right with him, who restores us as a new creation. Jesus says to this woman, go in peace. second command. He offers her shalom, restoring her proper role in society. She is clean. She can go to synagogue, go to temple. Now she can testify that the one who was searching for hope and relief, spending all that she had, has finally found it without cost. Last week, was the Women's March event, this annual event taking place in global cities around the world of women rallying and protesting against ill-treatment and injustice. And there are elements to this movement that are disturbing, laced with an agenda that clashes with biblical principles. But there are also several legitimate concerns of abuse, violence, and trafficking that violate women, who are equal dignity, who share equal dignity as men, as image bearers of the living God. I read a startling statistic recently that estimates that 100 million women in the world are missing, primarily from gender-selected abortion and human trafficking. The devaluing of life heaps up the unwanted and neglected and is a great offense to a holy God. But what marching women will never get from men or from human governments they find from an all-living God who cherishes his sons and daughters, those who call on him, who trust in him, and receive what only he can provide. While Jesus is still speaking, someone comes from the synagogue ruler's house to announce sadly, That the little girl is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. We can imagine, almost hear the gasp, people grieving, beginning to mourn. And then we can almost see angry glances of people staring at the woman who had disrupted Jesus' progress, delaying his arrival on time, too late to save the little girl. But into the shock, the grief and anger, Jesus issues a third command. Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be made well. The same root word, well, that Jesus ascribed to the woman. Do not fear is the most common command in Scripture. In fact, there is at least one unique verse in scripture that you can meditate on every day for an entire year. God is fully aware how fearful we are in a broken, fallen world. Recently, my wife and I watched the 2018 hit thriller, A Quiet Place, a stirring film about alien invasion of ghastly blind creatures that have very acute hearing. The survivor's have to stay very, very quiet in order to stay alive. And there's brilliant scenes that really draw you in as you watch this this desperate family attempt to stay alive, to protect themselves in rural Mid-America. One scene shows an old man burying his wife, his wife of many years, and in his despair, screams, alerting the creatures to his presence and sealing his doom. This film reminded me... Of everything that is precious to us, our families, our marriages, our children, our faith, our freedom, everything that we value is threatened by a parasitic intruder. And that's what sin is a deathly invader that does not belong in God's good world, causing us to reel in fear, afraid of losing what we cherish most. Well, hopefully we are not fearing alien invasion. But there are plenty of threats in our world. Health crises that lead to permanent damage, even death. Economic hardships with our fear stoked by a stock market rising and falling like a yo-yo in recent weeks. you we tried to buy toilet paper lately. I mean, it's crazy. And you know, people really need chill out. We fear discomfort to going without our commodities, our conveniences. And all of this is very telling of an unhealthy entitlement mentality. Into all of this King David writes in Psalm 34:4. he has delivered me from all of my fears. This is King David, the, fu- the former fugitive the one who lived in fear on the run from a murderous King Saul, the King David who was threatened by his own son with a rebellious coup. King David called God his rock, his refuge, his strong tower. And Scripture repeatedly tells us that we can cast our cares upon him, come to him with our anxieties in Our fears, and he promises to deliver us in our time of need. Well Jesus enters the house of the little girl, bringing only Peter, James, and John, and the girl 's parents, and He utters a fourth command to the mourners: "Do not weep for the little girl is not dead; she is merely sleeping in a reply, the crowds laugh they Mock him, for they know that she is dead. And ancient peoples were not stupid. They knew the difference between death and life. As you may know, sleep is oftentimes a euphemism in Scripture for death, pointing out the fact that it's temporary, that God has plans to resurrect the dead, to bring them into eternal life, alluded to in the Old Testament and vividly clear in the New Testament. Jesus' command renews our hope that a time is coming when mourning will cease, no more tears, no more sorrow when death and sin perish forever. Jesus' next move is perhaps his boldest. He takes the dead girl by the hand to touch a dead body made a Jew unclean. It required many rituals and time in order to be made clean again. But rather than this girl's death taint Jesus, his life overwhelms her death. Jesus' holiness makes her clean. Jesus makes the polluted clean again, no matter the muck, no matter how much we've been violated or marginalized. And here we find a beautiful picture of how it is that we can stand before God made holy and the righteousness of our perfect Savior. And Jesus utters his fifth and final command, child, arise. Fulfilling not only his word, but the word of God that promises that death will be swallowed up in victory. The girl's spirit returned. She got up ate. To the amazement of her parents. And Jesus charges them not to tell anybody, for the timing was not right. It's noted that this little girl did not experience resurrection. She would go on to die a natural death. But her resuscitation foreshadows Jesus' resurrection, which is the down payment for our own, giving us future hope that death is not the end of the story but merely the beginning of eternal life, when we will dwell in God's presence forever. Jesus makes the dead alive. He revives empty hopes, heals the wounds of lost loved ones, restores loveless marriages, recovers financial ruin. He is the savior of hope. You know, suffering reminds us that we are not in heaven yet. It reminds us that we are creatures, sinners in need of a savior. For Christians, suffering is real, not an illusion as in Buddhism. Unlike karma, we read that suffering is oftentimes unjust and disproportionate. People don't always get what they deserve in this life for good or bad. Job Joseph and Jesus were all righteous men who suffered greatly. Unlike moralism, Christians don't believe that suffering is a means to work off our sinful debt. And unlike secularism, the Bible teaches that suffering is meaningful. We learn from it. We grow through it. As long as we humble ourselves, trust in God, and call upon his name. I urge us to use this time to be in God's Word, to get off the internet, to invest in relationships. To don't fret over disrupted plans, like my parents waiting to decide whether to buy tickets to come to my daughter's spring high school graduation. There will be many things disrupted during this season. Use this time to be with God, to be with people in small numbers. And I pray that during this time of uncertainty, that we would hold fast to what we know is true, that we would glorify God in our hearts and in our deeds, that we might be a witness, to spread our hope to those who are desperate, that they might find Jesus, the giver of all hope. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we're so grateful for your Son who entered into a hostile, risky, contaminated world, who was touched by sinners, who brought healing and life, cleansing and restoration. Thank you for the hope that we have. I pray that we would walk forward from this place in the weeks to come with hope, with joy, strengthen our faith, renew our hearts, and help us to be your witnesses to a world in chaos. We pray that the the peace of Christ would fill us and renew us. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.